All right, y'all, here we are with episode two of the 2022 Owens Recovery Science Memorial Day podcast. On this episode, Zach Dunkel, our instructor, interviews a, a friend and, and colleague and fellow Marine, Tom Schmidt. They, they cover a lot of ground on this podcast um, from just the burden of war, uh, the rush of war to those that are lost. And um, there's some funny parts, there's some sad parts, and, and I really want to say uh, personally a special thank you to Tom for, for taking the time and being willing to share, because I, th- I think this is a pretty powerful episode in the end. So big thanks to Tom, and, and big thanks to General Walrath as well for, for sharing his thoughts on episode one. So I won't delay any longer. If you would, please stick around after the podcast for the playing of Taps, and that will finish out our, our Memorial Day special episodes. This is the Owens Recovery Science Podcast. Welcome back. Thanks for uh, tuning in. Um, this is our um, second year we're doing this Memorial Day podcast. Um, to talk about some of the sacrifices that have been made, um, you know, specifically, I would say the, the sacrifices, you know, we talked about last year, and then what we're going to talk about this year have been in a modern era with, with Iraq and Afghanistan, um, you know, and last year, it was pretty much Kyle and I um, talking about, you know, some of the sacrifices that guys have made that, that I personally knew, and, and I served with. And this year, what I wanted to do was bring on a buddy of mine, um, someone that I actually served with, um, a guy by the name of Tom Schmidt. So, Tom, you want to say hello? Hey, how's everybody doing? And so, uh, you know, what we'll do is, you know, just kind of give, give a brief introduction um, to you, Tom, and then you, you can feel free to elaborate on that um, as much as you would like. And so, um, you know, the, the thing with Tom and I, we actually grew up in Pennsylvania. Um, he grew up about just a, a little bit hour north of uh, where I grew up. Um, had no idea who each other was, though, prior to going to the Marine Corps. And I would say that's one of the great things about the military and the Marine Corps specifically is, you know, you, you get intermixed with um and, you know, all walks of life, so to speak. And then they throw you together and you're forced with, to work with one another. And so Tom and I both enlisted uh, the right before 9-11. And then, you know, we go to boot camp uh, that following summer. And from there, we went on to some of our initial training, which was, um, you know, infantry training. And then um, Ultimately, from there, we go to what's called uh, the reconnaissance training platoon or um, the reconnaissance indoctrination platoon. And that's just basically um, a group that prepares you to go into the amphibious reconnaissance school and then ultimately um, into reconnaissance within the Marine Corps. Um, For those who who aren't familiar, uh, reconnaissance is kind of the special operations unit of the Marine Corps. Um, It was... Um, that unit was the feeder program, so to speak, into MARSOC. Isn't that correct, Tom? Yeah, we, uh, we engulfed uh, first and second force to create MARSOC. And we also took a unit called FMTU, the Foreign Military Training Unit. And that's what initially stood up MARSOC as we know it now. Yeah. And so um, basically, you know, the, the gist of uh, Tom and I, 
Um, so you went to the amphibious reconnaissance school pretty much, uh, I believe it was the class before mine. Um, and, and then, then I ended up, I went and once you came back, you went to Okinawa, Japan, correct? Yep. I, uh, yeah. came back to my platoon and I was the, the low man on the totem pole and somebody was going to Oki and I'd messed up a land nav course that <laughs> like a little bit before that. So. I was easily cuttable as the boot and uh, what a blessing in disguise. I loved Okinawa. It was really great being stationed there. Changed my life. Yeah. Um, The the thing they say about Oki in in the Marine Corps is you you basically do two things. You either drink or go to the gym. Is that pretty much uh, your experience? Uh, Well, we were in Lieutenant Colonel Bristol's platoon or uh, battalion. So we went to the field. Uh, That was (laughs) You got an you got an order on Monday. You inserted Monday night. You extracted Thursday night and cleaned here on Friday, and you were off for the weekend. That was our weekly routine for months before we got the Iraq mission. Yeah. So um, now, when you went to Iraq, you basically relieved us when we were over there. Um, so basically, my my battalion, so Second Battalion, which is based out of Camp Lejeune down down North Carolina, we we went to Fallujah in September of 04. And then you came, Italian um, came over in April, uh, end of March, beginning of April of 05. Right. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And then, so <laughs> basically from there, um, you know, I had made the decision I was done. I was, I was getting out of the Marine Corps, um, you know, kind of uh, moving on and, and, and going to try to do something else. Um, and then, you basically re-enlisted and continued to re-enlist um, and, and stayed in, right? Yeah, I uh, just retired two years ago. I took Terra, so I retired at uh, 17 years instead of 20. But yeah. it was uh, it was a long journey from from thinking of all the way back then. Yeah, it's crazy, um, you know. And one of the things you know that I go back to is I, I, you think about things, and it just seems like yesterday. Um, that that happened, you know, whether it was a, a certain event, uh, graduation or the deployment, you know, what have you. So so going back to um, when, when you guys deployed to um, um, Iraq in, in the spring of 2005, that basically was when MARSOC was being stood up. Um, Debt One stood up out in California and then they stood up. Um, MARSOC in, in Camp Lejeune, what I believe is right around 2006, correct? Uh, I know that we closed down the colors and started uh, 2nd Marine Special Operations Battalion. We weren't allowed to be called Raiders yet because that wasn't approved. But uh, we were 2nd Marine Special Operations Battalion in 2007. And okay. then that's when 2nd Force stopped being a thing. But MARSOC, the command had already stood up before second force had stood down. Yeah. So when did you end up? Um, so, so you were deployed in, in Iraq in 2005 and then basically what happened from that deployment until you ended up um, going over to MARSOC? Yeah. So uh, I made the decision to re-enlist when I was in Iraq with the uh, third recon battalion and uh, you get to choose your orders or you get to recommend your, your top three suggestions. As, as a 0321, there's three duty stations, so that makes it pretty simple. And uh, <laughs> so I chose to go to second force, 
And uh, so that's where I went. Whenever I got back, I left like after Christmas. I went to second force and I was stood up in fourth platoon. And then we were getting into our workup. And then it just one day somebody came in and said, hey, they're Rumsfeld said, we're starting this new thing called MARSOC. And we were all like, well, what does that mean? And basically meant we were starting. We weren't going on the Mew and we were starting a whole new workup with grunts. And I was like, oh, okay, <laughs> crazy, you know, and everything happened from there. And that was the initial Fox company. I was in the, the first Fox company that the major Galvin just released his book about. Uh, we got ambushed and then it was, it was just bad from there. Cause we were the only Marine unit in Afghanistan at the time it was controlled by the army. And there was some, uh, some conflicting things that happened. <laughs> that book's really great. And, um, highlights all of those, all of those issues that we had. But then from that Fox company, I rolled into the second Fox company at second, uh, now Raider Battalion. Uh, we changed the name and <clears throat> I went out with uh, 8211 was our task force number. And uh, that was probably the most catastrophic deployment that I ever had. Uh, the most effects on the battlefield for sure, but the most effects on me as well. So that was that. And then when I uh, left there i took a little break because my wife was kind of tired of me deploying so much so i went to the schoolhouse as an instructor at the marine raider training center at the gifford hall so we worked there and then i went to third raider battalion and that's where i retired out of uh two years ago and i ran the training cell as a as a contractor for a little bit there at third and now I teach marksmanship to the Coast Guard and do like side hustles with MARSOC still. Yeah. You know, um, one of the things that I want to kind of go back to is what you said about your wife, because I think that's one of the things that, that can kind of get lost. Um, and, you know, the people that recognize the, the military make sacrifices. Um, you know, I think one of the things that gets lost with all that is the sacrifices that get, that gets lost at, at home um, with families, whether it's just a wife or it's wife and kids, it's, it's extremely hard on families. And I mean, you take a group like, you know, you're, you were in a, what I was in or just the, the regular infantry um, in the height of Iraq uh, you know, those recon battalions were doing seven month pumps or seven month deployments basically every 14 months. And so, and, and it wasn't just the deployments, right? I mean, the, the way it works for us was you would, um, you would do your deployment, you would come back and you immediately rolled right into a school phase. And so that school phase, you could be gone for months at a time you know, for military school. And then once you're done with that school phase, you start to work up again. It's a pretty brutal schedule. Yeah. So my wife and I got together whenever she's, uh, we, we had gone to high school together and, uh, or anything like that in high school. And then when I went back on leave, when I left third recon battalion was headed to second force is when I ran into her and that's where we started. So that Fox company workup was our honeymoon phase and man, was it a test? I mean, uh, so I have two stepkids and then I have two of my own and I've, I've never seen a birth. I've never seen a childbirth cause I was either deployed or training for everything. Um, when I, when I sit where I am now, it's, it's hard for me to fathom like what I have and why I have it. And it's all because of my wife. Like what, yeah. 
I mean, who cares what I've done in the military on a day-to-day basis? I know that people care. And when they say thank you for your service, I know they mean it. I, I see it. But what would I have if I didn't have my kids, my wife and my house and, you know, what, you know. <laughs> yeah, so, it's, it's crazy. I mean, it's, 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 those, it's, it's the wife at, um, you know, for, for us, you know, it's the wife. I mean, we were in an all-male unit um, and uh, it, it's the wife who holds it together, who holds everything together. Um, I couldn't even imagine, you know, being married and then uh, missing a, a birth. Like, how, how does that go over? Um, I mean, my daughter, Emilio, was born during the Fox Company firefight that we got ambushed in. And my son, Hunter, was born while I was under canopy during a jump package because he was about a month premature. Yeah, yeah, it's it's, it's brutally tough, you know, and and I think, you know, a a lot of credit um, and deserving credit deserves to go to them um, because truly... You know, it, it almost seems selfish, I think, sometimes because, you know, here we are, we love what we do. That's what we want to do. And we just expect people to willingly make that sacrifice just so we can do what we want to do. And, um, you know, a lot of credit goes to them. Well, 100%. Without my wife, uh, I don't know where I would be uh, mentally right now because it, when you're in, you wear the uniform, you, you feel it like every single day, like what you're doing and why you're doing it. But when, when you become an old retired guy, I mean, you, all you have is the memories. So That's man, right. it would be rough if I didn't have the family, you know? Yeah. Now um, let's talk about the deployment. Um, so when, when you said it, it, it kind of, you know, it had the most effects on you. Um, give us a little bit about, tell us a little bit about it. So it was really, really hot and heavy in Afghanistan at the time. And we were doing a lot of really good work. We had gotten into the special activities realm, which means that we were like, we were getting smarter about how we were conducting warfare. You know, like um, one of the things I remember really, really vividly is Mark Libo, my operations chief, talking to us. And so we had been tasked to do a slash and burn down south of all the poppy fields, right? And he sat us down and he was like, we can't do this. And I remember thinking like, why Mark? Like it's poppy. Like, of course we can do this. He's like, but you don't understand like the farmer that's growing the poppy isn't a heroin addict, you know, like he he has nothing to do with that. He's being forced to grow this poppy. When we burn his field down, he doesn't get paid. He doesn't get paid. He doesn't feed his children. They starve. Like this is reality. So then, you know, it was, just long story short, it was the first time that I ever realized about the second and third order effects on the battlefield. So that was really eye opening. So doing things the way that we were doing them was not the right, not the right way the first couple of deployments. And then we got really smart about the way we were doing it. So we were getting a lot more work, but that meant that we were seeing a lot more gunfights and we were, I mean, it don't, you run out of luck. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, and, and that's the thing is, um, I, I was just telling um, someone last week, um, you know, you use a little sidetrack story here, but with what's going on in the Ukraine right now, and you got all these, or not all, but you have a lot of former military guys that are going over there and joining the fight, um, but uh, from all around the world, you know, and um, there, there's something about being shot at and being in combat that, that gives this adrenaline rush and it just drives it. 
Um, and, you know, eventually, you know, you're going to run out of luck. It, it's a matter of time. Your time will be up. And it's just a matter of when your time is up, what actually causes your time to be up? You know, is it, do you get shot? Um, or are you in an IED um, at that point in time? You know, does the vehicle get blown up? And then what happens to you from there? But it's, it's just like you said, man, it's just, you're just rolling the dice each and every time. And I'll be honest, uh, I got addicted to the rough. I got addicted to the adrenaline, man. Uh, I really yeah. did like being on that breach point, like ready to ride that breach in and knowing that you're going to take rounds in this house. Like it's, yep. it's going to go on. Like it's going to happen. You got pop shots on the way up there. Like you're going to encounter a dude in a 10 by 10 space and you are going to shoot at each other. You know, like that's a kind of rush that you can't replicate. And the only way that I found to replicate it is actually instructing. And that's why I love it. Before I like demo something in front of the students or before I, I speak in front of the students for the first time, I get that, that like super scared feeling. You know what yeah. I mean? But, yeah, and it is. It replicates it. And that's why I love instructing. I think I think within that community, man, um, it is truly an alpha community. You, you from a physical context to the intellectual context of what's required, um, you it is the best of the best. And you literally are you're going to a house and and let's be honest, you know, it's not it's not like, you know, the infantry is just going through clearing buildings. No, they're they're sending these operators to HVTs are high value targets. And with those high value targets come increased threats as well. And it's just like you said, you know, you're rolling up to the house, they have security details out. Yeah. Um, and, and you know this, like you've been briefed on this, you know, yeah. that he has six PSB, you know, that he's armed, you know, that all this. Yep. So. And, and so you're, you're going to make contact before you even get to the house. And, and then once you're there, a gunfight is so unique. It is, it is truly man versus man. And who is the best at what they do? Who's the fastest and who's the most accurate. Um, So, but, uh, but yeah, man. So kind of tell us a little bit about like some of the guys in the team. Uh, So the, I've, I've, on teams and stuff like that but the one that sticks with me the most is 8211 task force 8211 and it was the the first um the first raider battalion so like uh you, you know we were we were marsoc before that and but now we were we were with the the raider battalion and it just came with a stigma and everything else same as you know the recon community had its own and that's where we all came from at the time there we were all 0321s we didn't even have an mos to ourselves at the time and uh so it's like this hodgepodge group of guys that were doing something new, but something that was the same at the same time. You were doing new warfare with new equipment, new intel means, new everything, but still it's, it's, it's gladiator warfare. I mean, it's you versus man. And yeah. it, was, it was just, it was crazy. And uh, so that was the largest team I was ever in. You know, the recon teams are only six guys, but, uh, and your platoon, I mean, your platoon isn't as tight knit as your team is. I, I, it's it's hard to explain uh, unless you've been there. But so when you're when you're in your your MSOT or your Marine Special Operations team, it's really really tight, and you have your element inside there. But you know you you do everything together, and you you learn each other's names. This isn't this isn't the grunts, and I'm not speaking ill of the grunts by any means, but 
you're not deploying with strangers. Yeah. Like, you, you know, his parents name, like, you, you know, his, you know, his kid's name, you know, his dog's name, you, you, you know, where he lives, like, you, you know, everything about every individual. There's no anonymity to it. There's no, oh, you know, this kill number got hit last night. It's, it's first names, you know? <laughs> so just a, just a different context of what I was used to in the Marine Corps to than what it became. And it was amazing and horrible at the same time. So Fox Company 8211 and our, our team chief was Eden Pearl. And that guy was just a, he was a legend in our community and a lot of people know him as an 0321. So the one thing that I will say about Eden, and it, it brings me to a little sidetrack story is people like to say a uh, jack of all trades, master of none, but not a lot of people have heard the, the, the whole saying, and it's a jack of all trades, master of none always beats the master of one. Like, and that was Eden. Like he, he personified everything that you could want to be in a Marsoc Marine, a Raider, um, a recon Marine, anything, you know, you could go to him about anything, be it a weapon, a, anything with a trigger, a fuse. Like he, he just, he just knew everything, you know, he, he was like an encyclopedia for warfare. And it was amazing just being a part of that and being able to, to download some of that knowledge from him, you know? Yeah, it was, you know, um, I, I didn't know him when I was in, um, but, uh, when you look into him and, and what people say about him, he is the warrior's warrior. Um, he is the guy that uh, I think it was you who put on Facebook. Um, um, maybe it was, it was a year or so ago that basically, you know, if you wanted his respect, you, you earned it in battle. That that's when, that's where you earned this man's respect. Um, and so, Yeah. He was, he wasn't like I am. I'm, I'm loud and <laughs> boisterous and stuff like that. He was so calm all the time. Like, I don't, I don't remember seeing him spun up ever, like ever. When, when he got hit, he was blown out of the vehicle and he was burned from head to toe, you know, but he was still conscious and he was busting the guy's balls that was carrying him out because Jimmy was fat. Jimmy star was fat and Eden was on his back getting carried off. And he was like, Jimmy, you fat fuck. You need to get in the gym. This is Eden Cole, like burnt from head to toe. You know, and I, I, I tell you that, that is one of the great things that, that I think, you know, that I take away from the Marine Corps. When, whenever someone asks me, like, they're like, do you miss it? Dude, you miss the ball busting of the Marine Corps. Uh, it is a brotherhood, just like you mentioned, right? It is a brotherhood like no other. Um, it, it's just, um, it, it's crazy um, how I, I always, you know, think about, and I, I say that, um, you know, in, in the civilian world, you know, people are like, if, if you have a goal that you want to accomplish something, they, everybody's all supportive about it. Uh, but in the Marine Corps, no, they take odds and they make bets that you're going to, they're, they're making bets that you're going to fail. And then they're making bets on top of that of when you're going to fail, how fast oh, yeah. it's going to be. So, I mean, it's crazy. Um, you know, there's, there's um, just kind of sidetracked from here. There's a, a guy that both you and I know, Chase, um, just a kind of this this story with him he uh when we were in iraq he uh he decided he was going to quit dipping he was going to quit chewing 
And that's just not an environment that that's going to be successful. No, no that just so, means you're going to keep, you're going to bum chew off of everybody. That's right. That's right. So we were, we were in a hide site one night and it was probably, it was like two, three in the morning we were set up um, because what was going on was um, the insurgents were putting IEDs along this, this main thoroughfare. And I was like, we got into this hide site, built a hide site. And I said, I started sniffing and I'm like, dude, like, I, I smell Copenhagen. And he goes, no, you don't. I said, no, no, dude. I, I smell Copenhagen. He goes, no, no, you don't. I said, dude, you got to dip in, don't you? He goes, no, no, I ain't got to dip in. I said, dude, you got to dip in. <laughs> and like, sure enough, he's like, all right, yeah, he's like, I got to dip in. And I said, all right, dude, you lost the bet. But I was like, whatever you got to do to stay awake, man, <laughs> you, you, you do it. But yeah, uh, but yeah. So, so back with Eden. Um, so tell us a little bit about kind of, um, that event like le- leading well, up to so like I, I met eden and i was in the original fox company and he was an sotg instructor and even then he was larger than life like he was the dude that like he was the end-all be-all for marksmanship and cqb you know so uh, so sotg is um it, it stood for the special operations training group and um just to kind of spin everyone up and you correct me if i'm wrong tom here um, that is basically who ran the in, um, coursework and in, they were the instructors that instructed the recon battalions and then uh, force recon as they were doing their workups for a deployment. Yep. Yeah. yeah. So uh, they, they still exist in a different capacity. <laughs> I guess they're not allowed to call themselves special operations anymore because MARSOC stood up. But uh, so I don't know. I don't remember exactly what it's called now, but uh yeah, so they were in charge of all of our training, and like your company checked into them, and when you left them, you were ready for war, you know? Yeah. So uh, Eden was, I think, the lead CQB instructor, but I, I could be wrong on that. Um, but he was he was out there, and it was just like he was larger than life. So I was ecstatic when he came to Fox Company to be my team chief on the next go around, and now we broke down into it was a different capacity we like reorganized ourselves within the companies a little bit differently and tried to mimic uh kind of the structure that sf uses um on how to do their irregular warfare and how to structure ourselves within the team so there's a lot of growing pains with it and stuff but we had once again we we had eden pearl you know so it was it was just that we were the we were the jump team so uh that's how it all started. Uh, he was the jump master. So he got put in eight, two, one, one. And we started our work up from there. Um, uh, the first thing that we would have done was the shooting package and everything else. And then, you know, it was just Eden, Eden ran everything. And Mark Libo was our ops chief. So, uh, Mark was like a shadow governor, kind of like he locked on ranges and training areas and stuff like that. But Eden always ran the training, you know? Yeah. And, uh, I don't know. He was like that. I don't know. I don't know if dad's right, but like big brother for sure. You know? Uh, it, so, so the, the night that we got hit with them, we were, we weren't very deep into that deployment. We were only like three months into that deployment and we had gotten some really good Intel on uh, guys that were working really close to our FOB, like where we were stationed, our forward operating base yep. in Herat, Afghanistan. So we were in Herat and we were hitting a town called uh, Seal with Sean. It was just to the north of there. It was maybe 1,500 to 2K, like something like that. It was, it was short, you know. But uh, the first night, our sister team, who was doing a, a, a raid at the same time, 
something happened with a vehicle or something. Anyway, everything got rolled to the right. Everything got pushed to the next time it got dark, you know? So that was like that anticipation, you know, because it got kanked and now it's back on again, you know? So you're getting ready, you go out and the raid went phenomenal. Uh, we, we nabbed dudes. We got, um, we got a bunch of ordnance and stuff like that. And we reconsolidated on the vehicles. And when we were, we were leaving, we were lined up. And I remember I, I was turned around trying to make sure all the vehicles were up because so in front of me was an RG 33. And for those of you that don't know, it doesn't have like a person sitting in the turret. It has a remote control gun system. So it can't, it doesn't have like really good situational awareness of what's going on. So he's going real slow until the convoy's up. Right. Well, <laughs> I'm turned around looking and there's an ANA vehicle behind me, Afghan national army. So it was like a Ford Ranger. It was right behind me. And then Eden's vehicle was behind that. And as he passed under a streetlight, it exploded and it went about 10 feet in the air and it was engulfed in flames with the, uh, the post blast, I guess they said that it was covered in aluminum powder. They had bags of aluminum powder on it, and that made it like a massive fireball. Uh, yeah, that was one of the strategies in, in Iraq that the insurgency really started to do, um, because about this time was you, you started to get like some MRADs um, kind of become a little bit more popular, and they started getting pushed overseas. Uh, and the MRAD is just nothing more than an extremely up-armored vehicle. Um, a lot of what we were using at the time was just simply Humvees. And then, like you said, with those Humvees, even if there was armor to them, you had the the, the turret and, and the gunner was ex, uh, exposed in that turret. And so the IEDs, you know, kind of from an explosive standpoint, started to maybe you could say had a little bit uh, less of an effect just because of the armor of the vehicle. So what they wanted to do is kind of in, induce a more catastrophic event. And they started doing things that would basically increase a fireball. And yeah, those, it, that became pretty, pretty serious. Um, so, so when you guys got hit, then um, vehicle just kind of explodes and, and flies in the air. And then you yeah, got this so it's huge. About, it's like 10 feet in the air and it's already in a ball of flame. So, yeah, I mean, I hate to say it like this, but I, I just thought they were all dead. You know, like there's no way anybody survived that. Right. So we started getting ambushed at the same time and I'm returning fire with my 50 cal. And then uh, they start telling my vehicle to back up. So obviously there's casualties. Um, according to the plan, my vehicle and the vehicle in front of me were the casualty evacuation VIC. So we started backing up and we had a, we were in a uh, GMV. All of our trucks were GMVs. The I don't know what that stands for, but it's a Humvee that has an open turret and an open back. So you could sit in the back of it, you know? Yep. So there were five people in Eden's vehicle. There was Eden, our Terp named Ali, uh, Mark Libo, John Stans, and Nick Roush. Nick Roush was an army psyops guy. I, I, I always call him a kid because, you know, we were all staff NCOs with multiple combat deployments and he wasn't, so, but he <laughs> wasn't a kid. Um, but so Nick was the driver and Ali was in the back passenger side behind the driver and uh, or back driver side. So when the vehicle landed, it landed on that side and pinned them in. So they, they died, but everybody else was thrown from the vehicle, Mark, Eden, and John. But the problem with it is that was the minigun truck 
And that truck hadn't fired that night. So 9,000 minigun rounds cooked off in the back of that thing. So that's 9,762, or for the civilians out there, 308 rounds cooked off in the back of that truck. And it's just raining brass on us as we're trying to pull the guys out. Yeah. Sorry, man. No, you're good. You're good. Take your time. Um, yeah. So the vehicle was pinned on that side and, um, we, we wanted to get Nick and them out. So, uh, the dog handler that we had actually stuck a 50 cal barrel under the vehicle and we tipped it over and they got Nick out and they put him in a body bag and he was in, he was in one of the trucks and, uh, just started packaging up the rest of the casualties because, the C-130 that we had overhead was telling us that there were 117 people moving toward us. And we said 17 and they said negative 100, over 100 people. And then they started shooting terrain denial fires to give us a little bit of time. So we're packing everybody up and uh, Eden's busting balls. And uh, Mark Libo is just screaming. He's just standing up, walking back and forth, spitting all of his teeth out on the ground and screaming and like he's mad he's like really really angry you know uh john stands is really really incoherent he had a really bad brain injury so i so, picked up john to so, put in my truck uh he was gonna go to, on the passenger side just to give people a little uh kind of background on stands um if if, if there's any uh gold rush fans out there john stands is on gold rush um and uh is is pretty crazy. He's a he's an extremely hilarious guy. I mean, you would agree, right? Oh my god, he's. I don't want to call him a clown because it's not the right word, but he yeah. is the morale booster of your team. Like 100%. there is no way you are in a bad mood if John is in a good mood. That's not yeah. possible. I remember being in Rip with him, and you know we would be outside, and and Rip was nothing more than a thrash session. I mean, he just <laughs> yeah. knew, knew every single day was it was physical thrashings um, i don't remember one class i don't right, remember right. one class yeah it's, it's probably changed now but like back then you didn't really learn anything it was just a matter of what could you physically no, 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 no. Do you remember cornelson's speech to us when we first showed up it was the only time that the person that received me at a battalion didn't lie to me so he said to us I am not here to teach you how to be a recon Marine. There's a school for that. I am here to teach you how to hump epic amounts of weight over biblical distances. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's crazy. And, and so stands, I'll never forget this. Um, we were outside, we were about ready to go on a run. And he goes, is this going to be a boots, no utes run? And so Utes is like your cami bottoms. So like just boots and no cami bottoms. And another day he's like, you know, this is going to be a socks and cocks run and like all, all this stuff. I mean, and, and, and he would say this stuff out loud to the instructors. And, you know, and there's like a certain amount of bearing that people have in the military. But these like in RIP, it was just a matter of like, oh, you want to make jokes? Then that's just going to make it worse for everybody else. So yeah. So when that he was, sang that song at the Christmas party to the one like really, yes. really sadistic sergeant that fucking yes. hated all of us. <laughs> yes. 
you know, hilarious. So that that is stands, and and so anyone you know, if you're a gold gold rush fan, he he's on there, and I think he's coming back um, the the next season that they record. But uh, so either way, so so you have basically this IED crash or this this IED incident. Um, you, you you have one guy down already. Um, yeah. So then, my vehicle backs up, and the walls. Uh, uh, blocked my 50 cal. So I was useless in the turret. So I hopped out to try to help casualties and like try to get some of the like, so there was a rocket and stuff like that attached to the turret. And now it's on fire. So we're like throwing all that shit out of the fire. So it doesn't go off next to us. And uh, meanwhile, we're getting rained on by brass and that was pretty terrible. So I yeah. grabbed John to put him in the vehicle and I have him in like a bridal carry, you know, like having yeah. him armed and I can't get the Humvee door open wide enough because it's got that strap, you know, yeah. And John Stans doesn't swear. This is very, very odd for our, our group of individuals. He doesn't swear. I don't know how, but he doesn't. Yeah. So I break the strap and that like jars him. He like shakes real bad and he goes, ah, fuck. <laughs> and I'll never forget it for the rest of my life because I've looked at John and I was like, you just swore. And for some reason, that was the most important thing in my life right then. Yeah. You know, like telling John that he just swore, you know, and I put him in there and then I went and got uh, Jason Roberts, who he only had one leg. So we put him in the back of the, uh, the back of my vehicle and uh, he rode in the back there. And then the other guys got put into the back of the RG 33. It's like a V bottom uh, up armored vehicle that we had run out first in case there were, you know, pressure plate IEDs. Cause that was their, that was their typical way of setting them off. This was not that this was a, uh, this was a wired IED. Yeah, man. So um, one of the things that, that I always remember um, from being in Iraq was the insurgents would, would never kind of directly fight us openly. They would always initiate or they would always attack us whenever they thought they had the upper hand or, or an advantage. And they would use these IEDs a lot of times um, to initiate um, an ambush or try to overrun us from that standpoint. Yeah, my time in Iraq, it was uh, when we were getting IED'd, it was, there was no follow-on ambush. We were just getting IED'd, and they were, they were happy with the effects that they were getting with that. The Afghanis would actually use that as, an, as a kickoff for an ambush, you know? Yeah. Uh, I don't – actually, I never got IED'd in Afghanistan that wasn't followed by small arms fire. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's interesting, the tactics, um, you know, as the duration of the conflicts continue – um, how the, the tactics evolve on both sides, um, but they definitely, you know, try to maximize the effect. Um, so you were saying that basically AC-130 said you guys had about 117 folks coming your way. Yeah, so um, the vehicle is still obviously on fire, and it's like it's melting. It's like there's a, there's a stream of aluminum, like, running down the road, you know? Yeah. So we load up the casualties, and we can't get Ali – our Terp out of the vehicle. He's an American, but he's our Terp, you know, and we, we can't get him out of the truck. The truck is just too hot and there's all those minigun rounds cooking off. So uh, they just launch our two vehicles, the RG and uh, my vehicle, a high back Humvee. And we just, we run back to drop the casualties off, you know? Well, they had about 2K of ambush set up for us on the way out and I was getting pop shots the whole time. And the initial IED blast 
Z'd out all of our radios, um, the Blue Force tracker kind of stuff, like anything mm-hmm. with a route and uh, anything with like imagery on it and stuff. It was Z'd out. It was it was gone. The data was gone. So now, we're did, coming out of steel with Sean, and we don't know which way to go. We hit a Y in the road, and we picked left. And if we would have picked right, we'd be I wouldn't be having this podcast right now. Yeah. Did you guys have any air assets on station, whether it be ISR or someone guiding you? Um, from the air and, and besides the uh, AC-130? So the, the 130, they like every sensor was tasked with the forces moving on our guys that were still back there trying to get Ali out of the vehicle and yeah. consolidate everything. So uh, I'm not even sure if they pushed an asset to us for that exfil. Yeah. I know that they, like the guys that were on the ground, they had that 130 overhead and uh, our JTAC uh, 50, man, he was... He was awesome. He was a prior fixed wing guy and just like, but he saved our lives that night. Yeah. So, so what, as the events unfold, um, what kind of goes on from there? All right. So uh, we, we have all the casualties loaded up in the two VIX and we're pushing back to Herat to the uh, row to row one or row two facility. And that, that means like level of trauma center, you know? Yeah. This is the our first trauma center that we can get them to, and we're trying to get them back as fast as possible because burns only get worse with time, and that's what everybody's really, really focused on because Eden Way is starting to close up, and uh, everything's just going – it's going bad, and it's going bad fast. So we are – we're literally getting shot at from every rooftop on the way out, and it was, it was getting really taxing, <laughs> and my turret stripped out. Like the, the, the handle on the turret literally stripped out the gears and I was spinning the turret from side to side, like shooting the 50 cal and I tore my oblique coming in the gate. And so I, I was like trying to help offload the guys and stuff. And, um, they had, you know, stretchers out there and Jason, I mean, Jason was in the back of the vehicle, like kneeling up on his good leg and he just had a stump hanging there and, I asked for a stretcher and they were like, he can walk. <laughs> and I opened the door and they said, well, he didn't have a leg. And they were like, oh shit, no, he can't. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So we got everybody offloaded and this was the, this was the bad part. Our boys were still in contact. So we were headed back. Uh, so I'm literally like, I'm dumping 30 weight in the 50 cal, like speed reloading some slap ammo, man. Like I'm getting yeah. ready to go do God's work again. And it's going to be really bad because they're really sure we're coming now. Yeah. So uh, we were coming up route one and the most glorious sight I ever seen was that initial truck pulling out onto the route in front of me. I was like, Oh, thank God. I don't got to go back in there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's pretty crazy. Like when, when, when you just get hit after hit after hit, you know, and it's just a matter of dude, let's just let the night just end. Let's just get out of here um and then recock regroup and then maybe go back in but yeah man it is the it just it wears on you and you just get fatigued you're like can we just can we just be done with this yeah the worst part of that one is it wasn't over because ali was left right and so we went back we we consolidated back on our fob now our forward operating base which was not harat proper we were down the road a little bit and I mean, we watched ISR, uh, the uh, the drone feed 
all day of them pulling his body out and urinating on him. And they hung a sign around his neck and they were, you know, tearing shit out of our vehicles and trying to steal whatever they could and stuff like that. But man, watching him get messed with like that, that'll stick with you like that. It's it's pretty hard. Yeah, I can imagine, man. It's, It's pretty tough. Yeah. And uh, the only one we lost that night was Nick and Ali. And uh, he didn't succumb to his wounds later is what I'll call it. But, yeah, I mean, it was years. It was right. So so he ended up coming back to the so he from Afghanistan, he then gets stabilized. They extract him out um, and he actually comes back to the States and goes to BAMSI or the Brook Army Medical Center and then um, the Institute of Surgical Research and whatnot down there in San Antonio or ISR, uh, which is like the big burn center in Texas. And that's what I always tell people, you know, if, if you ever you know, know have known someone in the military um, and they come back from overseas and you're like, hey, they're going to the burn center, that, that is the burn center. Um, and so date wise, Tom, this was 2009, correct? Yeah. 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 So 2009. And then basically, um, you know, he kind of, I don't want to say recovers, but he gets discharged out of Brook Army Medical Center. And um, it's, I believe, six years later is when he actually uh, succumbed to his wounds. Correct. 2015 is when he actually died. Yeah. Yeah. I was, uh, I was on another deployment. I was in Germany at the time. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty tough. Um, you know, um, a, a lot of times, you know, guys w- with injuries and whatnot, they, they may not necessarily die in country or at the time of the incident, but they ultimately die there. Um, and due to the injuries that were sustained um, from that. Yeah, man, um, Eden was... He was, he was something special, man. So like, I don't know why, but we were, we were lured into this false sense of confidence that he was going to be just fine. I mean, the only thing that we had seen was them intubate him. And I remember seeing that with my EOD tech and like, you know, breaking down a little bit, but, but that was the only like, I don't know. It, it was, it was very weird because burns are, they're tricky, man. Like they don't look that bad at first. Right. And so he was busting Jimmy's balls and everything else. By the time we got him back, his airway was closing up. So they intubated him. And that's when we knew like, Oh my God, it's really bad. And then uh, it was a few days later. Um, it might've been even longer, but I mean, who knows the timeline, but the first thing that we got told about Eden wasn't that, he was getting better. It's that they had to take both of his legs and his left arm. And man, we still had four months of deployment left. Yeah. So we got a, uh, we got a combat replacement and we, we kept pushing the fight, man. Yeah. That's, that's the thing that I think is, is really hard. Um, you know, 
for for the guys and the, re- the the rest of the team or the rest of the platoon or the rest of the group is, you know, in in the moment you don't have time to mourn that. Um, you know, you know, and, and I bet Eden would tell you the exact same thing, man. You got to push on. You got to continue on with the mission. Um, you know, mission comes first, and that that was the mantra. Um, and so when these guys go down, um, you don't really, you don't have time to, to think about it. You know, you can ask like, Hey, how's, how's Eden doing or how's, how's so-and-so doing, you know, whatever. And you just get a brief update, but then you just continue on with the mission. Um, it's, it's very different than I think the way, you know, things are on the civilian side of things where there's a grieving process, there's a mourning process. Um, but when you're in a combat zone, when, when you get hit with an IED that when that happens, you, you literally are just the next day you pick right back up and and you're back in the fight. Um, you know, and it's like you said, um, you know, you got to go out and recover the, 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 the turf or, you know, the other individuals who, you know, maybe didn't, you, you couldn't get out of the vehicle and whatnot. Um, it's really tough. And I think ultimately, um, not as it, it's not just tough in the moment, but then it, it's tough when you come back and now you're dealing with that. And, you know, it's, it's honestly, I think kind of, you know, what makes Memorial day, um, it really is special as it is. Um, and it's, I, I think for me specifically, and I think a lot of veterans feel this way, especially those who lost somebody, um, it, it, it's a very unique, um, holiday in the sense of you we're, we're supposed to remember and, you know, lift these people up or lift these guys up um, as, as heroes, people who literally sacrificed their life for the freedoms and the things that we enjoy. But at the same time, you know, we, there's a grieving process. And because we never were, were able to grieve at the, at the moment, you know, we have a lot of these emotions kind of held in. It's, it's a pretty tough balance. I really like I, I felt like inhuman when my mom passed away because my my level of grievance just I, I wasn't capable of grieving for my mom the way that, you know, my sisters were. My dad was, you know, it's like 70 year olds on their second pacemaker die. You know, like that's 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 what happens. You know, yeah. like I, I was just like so surreal about it. And they were like, what's wrong with you? And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, it, 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 it is, it's really kind of crazy, um, you know, kind of the, that grieving and, and how you're like, hey, yeah, man, I mean, it's, it's, you know, as you age, as you get older, it's almost becomes acceptable. But then you take a look at someone who almost looks or is, is what you consider invincible. And then you really start to see, that, you know, they're, they're, they're not really invincible. Um, and that hits you pretty hard. Um you know, like you said, whether it's at first with the innovation and then it's like they took both legs, they took an arm and you're like, holy cow, man, like, dude, this guy was larger than life. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. And you couldn't you couldn't like fathom it. Like it was just you, you can't kill a god, you know, like it that, that's like, it, you know, <laughs> um, like this guy's immortal. Like he he does not die. Um, and uh, yeah. Yeah, but that's, uh, that's, so there's this, uh, this tattoo that we got in our team and it's a, it's a Spartan shield and it's got some like nicks in it and like gashes and stuff like that. Yeah. My buddy designed it and 
it's really cool because I'm down here and I'm I'm teaching Marsoc right now, and the team is eight two one one, and some of the dudes have that tattoo, <laughs> and I noticed it was different than mine, and I looked at it and. They've added people to it. So they've uh they've added like Nick's in the shield for yeah. more people that you know gone down in the team. And uh I think it's the saddest thing in the world that I gotta go update this tattoo. <laughs> Yeah, man, it's it's tough. Yeah, I think you know um, w- one of the things that, that I know that I've, I've tried to do myself um, with with guys um, that I personally know who have died is you know you, you never forget the sacrifices that were made and when they died in that event. And I think it's really important to kind of share that. Um, and, and, and hopefully I, I hope more veterans um, really start to do that um, because we have another huge issue that, that is going on with our veteran community. And um, you know, it's, it's ultimately the suicides that, that we see. And um, I, I hope that, you know, folks are willing to get out there and talk about things more. Um, I, I do, I do really believe that, um, people truly do care, um, about these sacrifices. And I think they want to know about them. And, and I think getting out there and talk about them, and I think that can be quite therapeutic. Um, the other thing that, that I would say that I've always tried to do, or I've more so recently is think about the good times that, that I shared with that person, um, you know, not just necessarily the event where they ended up, you know, maybe lost their life or were significantly, uh, severely wounded. Um, you know, think about, you know, training that we went through and, you know, one of the things I think you would recognize as well is one of the great things about the specialized training that we've been through and what brings us together and creates that bond that you mentioned earlier is the suck. And, um, one, one of the, the key phrases, you know, that, that runs within those small units and those specialized units is embrace the suck, embrace the suck of life. And, you know, what that really means is really enjoy that moment, enjoy that moment with the people you're with, because that's what I think, you know, I look back on and, you know, really kind of, you know, think about and, and how fun and, you know, things like that, that you just, you, you enjoy and embrace that misery. Oh, yeah, man. I mean, mutual suffering brings people together like nothing else on the planet. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, if, you, if you've suffered together, you you become more than kin, you know, that, that, that is the bond. Um, and I think, you know, um, what that does is that that's probably about the only thing or the best thing that the military can do in a training situation is create the most miserable environments, um, because, you know, the people that are going through that, you can look at that and be like, you know what, if, if, if this person went through that and we went through it together, I can trust this guy with my life. Um, and, and that's ultimately, you know, kind of going forward, I, I think what really matters, um, you know, downrange, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. 
but uh, you know, what, uh, what, what, what type of things do you, do you kind of, um, you know, think about or like Memorial day, like what, what does that mean to you, Tom? Um, well, so like when I was a kid, I, the only thing I remember Memorial day meaning was that the pool was open, you know, like <laughs> I, I really don't, don't remember anything else. I remember that's when yeah. our school would go to Idlewild, like the, that, shitty theme park that yeah but like yeah 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 that was like what memorial day was all about and then you know later on in my life i was i remember looking back on it and being like geez i was way (laughs) off on that and yeah i i just the the ignorance i had as a kid is just i hope that nobody else has that you know like don't wish people a happy memorial day and things like that yeah it's, uh, it's, it's crazy. I remember, um, when I was a kid, uh, my dad was in the Marine Corps and, uh, we went to this, uh, Memorial Memorial day service at a cemetery. And I just remember thinking like, dude, how much longer do I got to stand here? It's hot. I, I do. I, this is so boring. Uh, I don't, I don't want to do this any longer. And, and like each year I'm like, do we really have to do this again? Um, you know, and, and I think, you know, similar to, to your experience, looking back, I'm like, I would stand there for days on end if it meant that we could bring more of these guys home, um, alive, they, they could come home alive. Um, I, I would, I would sacrifice, um, you know, whatever heat, whatever humidity, whatever I personally had to do, if it meant that these guys would still be alive. Um, and so, yeah. Um, and it's, it's just kind of crazy. Like, you know, as you have, uh, lived experiences as how your, your mind um, set changes. Um, but, uh, man, um, I, I, Tom, I really thank you for coming on, man. I'm, I really enjoyed, you know, you telling your story about Eden um, and, and the guys that you were with. Um, I just, I really appreciate it. And I, I, I hope that, and I think our listeners will enjoy that as well. Um, is there anything else you want to share before we kind of wrap things up? No, I don't, I don't think so, man. All right. Well, man, um, you know, thanks again. And, um, you know, take care of uh, old Chase out there. Training, train, train the puddle pirates. Uh, so yeah. uh, <laughs> I had to ask them what they wanted called. I was like, "What are you guys?" And they're like, "We're coasties." I was like, "You coasties. don't mind being called coasties? Like that's what you want called?" And they're like, "Yeah, yeah. okay, cool." Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, when when Chase told me that he was training the Coast Guard, I'm like doing CQB. I'm like, "What exactly does the Coast Guard need to be doing training CQB?" I mean, you know, but, uh, yeah, so, I love that job. It's so awesome. Good deal, man. Good deal. But honestly, right. that was one of the last conversations that I had with, it was the last conversation I had with Eden was about being an instructor. And that's why I took an instructor billet. And I think that's why I've been chasing it ever since. But, uh, so I was, I was throwing this huge hissy fit about having to train because we had an entire Kandak we didn't have like a battalion. We had a whole Kandak with thousands of people that we were supposed to train on yeah. Herat. And I was like, this is stupid. I have like, I have like 300, 240 gunners that I'm trying to teach this and ask to like, it's, it's impossible. So Eden sits me down and he says to me, he's like, I know you're a good machine gunner. All right. Like, let's say that 
you're just an okay instructor. And I was like, all right, well, okay, we're starting this off on the wrong foot, but all right. Uh, he, was like, <laughs> he was like, let's say that you can train somebody to be half as good as you on a machine gun. And I was like, all right, all right. He's like, well, if you train 200 people, what does that equate to on the battlefield? And I was like, whoa, it like blew my mind to think about it for the first time in that context. And I've been an instructor ever since, man. Yeah, it, it's, um, it, it's crazy. Um, you know, when, when you have people who not just necessarily are true leaders, but are able to kind of relate information and, and make you see, you know, things that you just don't see. Um, I, it, it, it's such a valuable thing. And it's one of the things that I, I think make true leaders and maybe why some of the best leaders come out of the military um, is because they, they put people in positions that they can see where they're going to excel. Um, so. Yeah. All right, man. Yeah, well, I guess I got to get back to the grind. All right. Hey, thanks again, Tom. Yeah, no problem, man. I really All appreciate right. you having me on. Absolutely, man. Take care, okay? All right, thanks. All right, all right. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Owens Recovery Science Podcast. We'd like to conclude these special episodes with the playing of TAPS.